Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And I have a great episode for you today. Be sure to subscribe to The Other People Podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe for free on YouTube. Today on the program, my guest is Dave Eggers, author of a new all-ages novel entitled The Eyes and the Impossible. I prefer to write in kind of a catapulting, breathless style. It makes me feel alive and me feel free. And, and it contrasts the fact that you are sitting for eight hours at a stretch in this weirdly sedentary profession. So after writing this, I thought like, well, why write any other way? You know, I, I, I struggle with it all the time because there are t- forms of storytelling where you do need a more sober, tonally neutral way of writing where you're getting out of the way of the story. Like writing nonfiction, usually I'm trying to just disappear as a narrator and let the story emerge. But as a writer, it's a lot less fun, (laughs) you know? All right. That was Dave Eggers, best-selling author, publisher, founder of McSweeney's, co-founder of the literary nonprofit 826 Valencia. Dave Eggers has written a new all-ages novel. It is called The Eyes and the Impossible, available from McSweeney's in a deluxe limited edition wood-bound hardcover. I have a copy of this edition. It's really beautiful. The book is also available in a more traditional style hardcover from Knopf Books for Young Readers. The Eyes and the Impossible is the story of a dog named Johannes. 
who lives in a park and who serves on behalf of the other animals as the eyes of the park, helping to keep track of what is going on, helping to maintain what is called in the world of this story, the equilibrium. The Eyes and the Impossible is whimsical, fantastical, often very funny, moving. It's a beautifully written book that also features wonderful illustrations by Sean Harris. I'm very happy to have had the chance to talk with Dave Eggers. This is his first time on The Other People Show. We had a great conversation. You don't want to miss it. That is coming up momentarily. For those of you who might be new to the program, The Other People Show happens weekly. It actually happens twice a week these days. I've been doing two episodes a week this year. The podcast features in-depth interviews with authors. I also now do what are called craftwork episodes on occasion, where I talk with a guest about a specific aspect of the craft of writing or the business of publishing. The podcast is available wherever podcasts are available. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, you name it. Please subscribe. It's free. And the entire archive is free. There is no paywall on this show. There are more than 830 episodes available right now to you, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. So if you like this program, if you have a good experience, if you listen regularly and feel like you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting the work that I do for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. Help me keep making this show week in and week out and delivering this content. You can get another people t-shirt if you want. It's getting ready to be summer up here in the Northern Hemisphere. So get another people t-shirt. They're great. They're soft. They fit well. They wash well. Just go to otherppl.com. Scroll down. Look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. If you would like to receive my once a week email newsletter, it's free. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Please, if you have a couple of minutes, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It helps the cause greatly. It helps new listeners find the show. Rate it. If it's possible to write a quick review, write a quick review and help get the word out. You can watch the Other People podcast on YouTube. I should note that there is not video of this conversation with Dave Eggers. We could not get video, so you can listen to it on YouTube, but typically you can watch these conversations on the Other People YouTube channel. Just go over to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you find the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can follow the show on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And if you have feedback for me and you want to let me know what you think, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It is now one year old, or it will be one year old this week. Its official birthday is May 10th, I believe. So it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. And it is available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It is a work of autofiction, so if that interests you, if you would like to read my novel, once again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So my guest once again is Dave Eggers. His new all-ages novel is called The Eyes and the Impossible, available in a deluxe limited edition woodbound hardcover from McSweeney's and is also available in a more traditional hardcover from Knopf Books for Young Readers. Dave Eggers is the author of many books, including 
the Every, the Circle, the Monk of Mocha, a Hologram for the King, What is the What, and a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. He is the founder of McSweeney's, the independent publishing company, and a co-founder of 826 Valencia, a youth writing center that has inspired over 70 similar organizations worldwide. Over the course of his career, Daybeggers has received the American Book Award, the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award for Education, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, and the TED Prize. He has been a finalist for the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. I'm very pleased to have Daybeggers here on the show and to get to share this conversation with all of you right now. So... Here he is, folks. This is Dave Eggers, and his new all-ages novel, One More Time, is called The Eyes and the Impossible. I don't think I would ever leave permanently. My family and I had have done little sojourns elsewhere for six months at a time, maybe, just to kind of, one we did during the Trump years, just to get out of the madness for a little bit, so we spent a semester in Spain and another time we spent a semester in Buenos Aires just because it was it was nothing to do with being tired of this place but you know you travel the world and you wonder where else would you prefer to live and there's no city really that I would prefer to live in you know that I find sort of better in any particular way than San Francisco the only place I think I would go is you know very islandy kind of environment you know like i'm not necessarily made for cities for the rest of my life and so but it is weird you know the bay area for all of its so-called problems and so much of that is trumped up by certain media outlets that just focus on a few things and they've been doing that for 30 years or as long as i've been here it's the same story told by well generally the east coast media but there is no area more beautiful. There's no developed area that I've seen in the U.S. prettier than the Bay Area. Uh, No offense to Los Angeles. But for me, it really started with the aesthetics of the mountains and and the hills and the ocean and the bay. You know, the access to just so many radically different landscapes within an hour or two and so much open land, all of those things were sort of my first selling point to coming and staying in the Bay. And then, um, and you know, of course my wife is from here, her family's here. So you just, you know, our ties are very, very deep at this point, but I don't know, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know how you feel about, you know, what's keeping you in LA, but I think that the headaches are one thing, but LA culturally, there's no more exciting place in the U S I don't think. And so, the people that I know, I've had so many friends from the Midwest that have done the same thing in LA. I've been there for 20, 30 years and, you know, vaguely think every so often about leaving, but where would you go? <laughs> right? right. That's always, that's always the second part of the, of the conversation is like, okay, should we leave? Well, then where should we go? And that part of it, we can never figure out. And the upsides outweigh the downsides ultimately for me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know where, you know, unless you're making some radical switch and, you know, moving to Jakarta or moving to, you know, Melbourne or I don't know why I'm going to the Pacific Rim each time here, but, <laughs> but, you know, or to, to, uh, to uh, an island uh, somewhere that I think 
you are. And, and I, I, I feel like the West Coast is just where I need to be in the U.S. I think the only other U.S. city I could really see myself in is Miami, just because it has a similar sort of geographical diversity that I love and all over the water. Like you, after a while, if you get used to just being around water all the time and spending a lot of time on the Bay, you really can't live without it. So I spend a lot of time in Idaho, but I do miss the water. And so after a little bit in Idaho in the summers or the winters, I really have to get back to sort of, to, to be close to an ocean. I don't feel quite right if I'm not. Wait, so what's in Idaho? Uh, you know, my, my wife's family had, you know, just like a ski condo there. So she went there growing up and then we started spending some time there in the winter and then the summer. And we discovered, you know, some of the towns, uh, an hour or two away from Ketchum and, um, made friends there and got into fly fishing and got into hiking the sawtooths. And, uh, so it's, I mean, gotten to know it really well and love it quite a lot and mainly because it's almost empty. It's still, it's like the Switzerland of the U S like 90% of it is national park basically. And so it is a place where you can be alone on a mountain on any given day. And there's only so many places like that, but very strange to, to have gotten so familiar (laughs) with Idaho. And in all that time, I've never seen a potato, never seen a potato farm, you know, never seen any of these, uh, I guess the things that we grow up thinking or associating with the state, but it is a gorgeous place. And even though politically some of the looniest stuff that has occurred, uh, occurs in Idaho. And I do sympathize with my friends that are there and struggling with the lunatic abortion laws until, until then it was quite a pleasant place uh, to be. Well, the work that you do, uh, in fiction in particular does have ties to the Bay area and your experiences there. And that seems like a really natural creative choice, like a natural thing to happen considering you've spent most of your life in that area and have proximity to Silicon Valley and people who work in Silicon Valley and technology. And what I was thinking as I was reading, uh, the eyes and the impossible is about the trajectory that you're on, at least in recent years, writing the circle, the every, I know you've done some journalism work covering Trump and have been to many Trump rallies. I know that you went to, uh, Ukraine and reported from Kiev not too long ago. And so the common denominator here is that there's something dystopian and dark, uh, about a lot of this stuff. And the idea that you would then pivot to writing an all ages book with a canine protagonist makes a certain emotional sense to me. You know, those, there's always been kind of a toggling between those two worlds. Like I trained as a journalist and so I feel like a responsibility to even just for for uh, my personal edification to figure out what the hell is going on. You know, when, when Trump was running in 2016, I just couldn't believe that this national joke that we had made fun of for 30 years and even, you know, the New York papers had lampooned for 
his entire career and that no serious human took seriously was was actually gaining a following. And so I went up to Sacramento and went to a rally there and spent the day with people and very normal people, very, it, it, it totally awakened me to just, A, how casual most of his fans are. You know, they go and they, they want to see the guy from TV. And what was interesting is that, you know, we waited in line all day in 90 degree heat. I got to know a lot of people. They were more diverse than you'd think, more uh, rational than you think, and definitely less informed and less sort of politically savvy, I guess. They just, they didn't care that much about all of the the bad press. They didn't know his policies very well. It was really just the guy from TV was coming to town. And I just wanted to, I, I would always come back thinking like, oh, 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 this is not a bunch of, you know, frothing lunatics raising their right arms in salute to a proto-Hitlerian kind of autocrat. They're really just there to hear some jokes from the guy on TV. And I'm not saying that that's everybody, but I will say that the crowds, I went to seven different rallies, including the one in Kenosha on election night, and the crowds are so passive and they bring their kids and they have coolers and they walk around the grounds beforehand while Celine Dion is playing very loudly. <laughs> you know, they are, I don't know, it's, it's not so different for the most part from going to like a county fair. And when he starts getting into the real hateful rhetoric, which he does every so often, I have always found people to start tuning out rather than cheering crazily, except for the lock her up part. But everything else, he always continues far longer than people want to be there. <laughs> He's always talking when people are leaving. And the people that I've interviewed are invariably a lot more sort of malleable, closer to rational than you think that they're going to be. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. I mean, at least that there's, there's some hope, like you said, that they can, they can be led and misled. So Trump may have misled them. Hopefully somebody can lead them back towards a more rational. Yeah. And then you, you also have to just remember, like people are going to go with the winner uh, for their party. If they think that Trump, I mean, Republicans are going to vote for Republicans, right? So you have a 40% maybe hard Republican population. And they're just going to vote for the Republican candidate, which I found upsetting because he's, I thought, well, Republican, fine, but he is an autocrat that will, uh, that has every intention of ending democracy, right? It's just so obvious. Right. And yet people are still just, well, he's better than voting for a Democrat. And uh, so that's why in the next election, you know, the independent vote is always the, always the key factor. So- in light of that, and in light of the novel that you published, I believe in 2021, The Avery and its predecessor, The Circle, both of which are dystopian, but also funny, but both of which are concerned with some of the more unsavory aspects of the tech economy that we live in. Uh, I, I can't help but note that with this book, you're writing for all ages, there's essentially zero technology in it. 
it's it's an totally a political book there's no politics in it that's this must have been fun for you like a nice like break from some of the heavier stuff that you have been engaging with yeah it it, it was it's the most fun i've ever had writing a book so i needed this <laughs> for my own sanity as a sort of a palate cleanser but you know i was trying to think of the books that meant a lot to me you know when i was a kid being read to and they were all sort of books about a pure kind of adventure that books where there were friends that counted on each other where honor mattered where courage was valued where uh they could you know exult in their speed or the beauty of the world and you know simple but lasting things like that and i so it was i was determined that this book have no political undertones this is not symbolic of anything else these animals are really the story should be judged uh, on its own terms about actual you know beings with souls well, that and you yeah. say as much in like a, a little advanced word or what do you call it like yeah a, there's whatever a little that is disclaimer <laughs> yeah disclaimer because i really felt like oh boy what if they think that the dog is this and the ducks are that and the bison are that? you know this is an animal farm and i and i think that you know they're having been around you know kids for so long and through 826 valencia and down there in la there's 826 la and you know, there are two types of books for kids and one of which has political lessons to, to teach or moral lessons to teach. And I've written those two. And and then there are other books. And, you know, I think that generally the kids appreciate those books, but they don't gravitate to them always. You know, there's the well-meaning books that I think that we publish in great numbers that <laughs> that that aren't always the ones that the kids gravitate to themselves. I was at a bookstore yesterday and they said, you know, far and away the books that outsell every other book for kids 10 to one are the, uh, Dave Pilkey sort of dog man and, uh, captain underpants and stuff like that, which, uh, all the kids in my life have always appreciated too. Like kids do want pure adventure. They do want silliness. They do want, uh, unhinged fun voices that kind of mirror how they see the world. And they want to have pure delight and enjoyment. And, and not everything does have to be sort of a heavy, sort of leaden reflection on uh, what's going on in, in politics uh, in the world. And I think we have to remember those two things as parents, as teachers and everything is that we, we do need to give them pure storytelling for its own sake sometimes. So I was poking around online and read that you as a child, like the, one of the first books, if not the first book that really connected with you was the book Corduroy by Don Freeman. Yeah. That was by far my favorite picture book. Me too. Yeah. Wow. Have you seen the 50th anniversary or 40th where they have all the letters between Freeman and his editor and the illustrator? Yeah, yeah I have it. Oh, I have it. So I got great. it for my, for my kids. And I, you know, it, kids, don't put too much thought into what they like, right? Like you just, yeah. as a kid, you just let go of that one. And, you know, then as a parent, the the sort of fun of going on a nostalgia trip and then getting to read that book to your own kids and gave me an opportunity to sort of explore, like, what is it? It's a picture book. It's about a little bear with a missing button in his overalls. 
in a department store where all the stuffed animals come to, or he comes to life at, yeah. at night after dark. And, you know, it's a very simple story, but there's some great sense of adventure about being like at large in a department store after it's closed. Yeah. And for some reason, I, when I read that, I was like, holy shit, like me too. <laughs> like that well, and, and I think that the girl that ends up buying him, you know, she saves her money, she, or I forget how, but I think she has to, you know, she and her mom sort of choose him and she has to, you know, I think she has to save money for him and then she ends up repairing him. So there's that sense of like agency, but very, but not sort of, uh, you know, fantastical agency, but very practical. And I think as a kid, you're like, oh, right. She's responsible. She's thoughtful. She takes care of this bear. She fixes him up. But it's like there's something very. You find, I think, a lot of times that combination of fantasy and practical, and sort of how you can see yourself as that girl. I collected teddy bears and stuff, and so it meant a lot to me. To I was like, well, that's exactly how I would have done it, or that's how I think. That sense of taking care of something and sort of, you know, having a delayed gratification in a way she doesn't like see the bear and get him immediately. Like there's some sort of sense that, uh, her mother makes her work for it, I guess I, I might be getting that wrong, but, but then there's, you know, that very kind of pedestrian type of adventure that he has, you know, it's like three beats, you know, he's on the bed, he encounters the, uh, security guard, you know, two other things happen and then it ends. And so I, I don't know why, that book had that kind of pull on me. But I think between the simple story, the very beautiful drawings, and somehow I always saw myself very parallel to that, the girl, the character. I sort of was like, yep, that's how I would have done it. <laughs> and I think that it's just like, uh, you only see that a few times. I can only remember a few books that sort of struck me the same way. But that was number one for sure, the one that I read most often. Yeah, that's wild. There's an elegance to storytelling, like in a picture book in particular, with like so few pages, so few words, and yet there's a full narrative there, and there's all this sort of subsurface complexity. And It's so hard. It's just like a perfect poem. It's right. a perfect picture book. And Freeman was amazing at it. And But I think that there are so many great, authors out there now. I mean, we've had like a 25 year renaissance where there's more really good authors working in that sphere than ever before. And there's a lot of great publishers really putting care into the craft of the book. And, you know, I think that we, when we might be the same age, I don't know, um, but I grew up in the seventies and eighties and there might be back then a couple thousand titles for kids period available. And now there's like 30,000 a year or some crazy number, you know, it's like exploded a, a lot of it after Harry Potter, but we've, we've been lucky because there's so many great prose writers working in picture books and chapter books and middle grade, but you know, all of these different categories that I don't necessarily uh, believe in, but I do think that I love a lot of these contemporary writers. And, and what's weird is that, I went back, I read the, you know, you go back and you read the classics when you have kids. You try to read Wizard of Oz. You try to read, uh, 
we tried to read the Swiss Family Robinson recently, which is just almost unreadable. And you realize that so many books, the styles were so discursive and dense and kind of uh, misshapen in a way. Like the Swiss Family Robinson, they'll just be 10 pages about how to tie a knot, you know, or like how to <laughs> fix a, a boat made of cypress or something. It just, it's so technical. And you realize that these were not just books with plots back then, but they were, and Jules Verne's books were sometimes like this. They were explaining new science to the reader at the same time. And they felt like they had a responsibility to do that in the middle of the, the stories. But, you know, these days, you know, between uh, Jason Reynolds and Kwame Alexander and Catherine Applegate and, you know, uh, uh, Kate DiCamillo and, you know, so many writers that, uh, and I think Judy Bloom is being rediscovered now uh, or reread again. And you're realizing like, oh, these are very cleanly written, beautifully written, you know, books that have a mastery of pace and storytelling. And that sometimes we yearn for that, even as adult readers, you know, like give me a well-told story um, with the clarity of, uh, and sort of, I guess, economy of poetry. And that's what I think that books for young people can, can do uh, at their best. So I want to talk with you briefly about categories. I know this is like one of those things that becomes annoying, but this book, The Eyes and the Impossible is an all, I guess you call it an all ages book. It's not just for young readers and readers of any age can enjoy it. And I'm wondering about the creative part of it as well, like switching gears from writing, say like a, a novel, an adult literary fiction um, book that deals with like a tech dystopia and then shifting to an all ages book where you are voicing a canine protagonist. Like what, what is that like? And like, were there certain things you had to do or were there struggles that you had to find your way into it in a way that felt authentic? Well, I think I'm sure you go through this yourself, like trying to, you might have a story in mind, but you haven't figured out the voice of that story. And, um, and sometimes it's a, it's a matter of structure first too. I don't typically outline, but I do, feel totally leaden and stuck until I find the voice. But in this case, like sometimes the voice is so, I mean, I wanted this to sound like, you know, the narrative and the voice and the, everything was sort of catapulting downhill in a very sort of uh, stream of consciousness, breathless sort of way. And I kind of wrote it the exact way uh, it came out with more sort of uh, uh, joy and, and, and with less resistance than anything else I've written. And, and I just allowed myself to, uh, you know, not self-censor to, to allow the weird hairpin turns of his mind, uh, the, the strange observations, the errors and judge or, you know, sort of, how he sees uh, the numerical side of the world. Um, he has no ability to count really. So everything is a million or a billion. And, but I feel like all of that, I just kind of was trying to reflect an untethered mind, which is in a way sort of 
the purest form of, I think when I sit down, this is how I would like to write always, you know, um, but you can't write about Ukraine necessarily in a voice like this. And um, <laughs> I mean, you, you could, you but. <laughs> could, I mean, I wrote about Ukraine and ended up in the believer, um, the longer piece, it's like 12,000 words. Of course, it's so hard to find a home for something that long, but that the way I wrote that was not, was, was a cousin to the, the narrator in uh, eyes because Again, I, I prefer to write in kind of a catapulting, breathless style. It makes me feel alive and me feel free. And, and, and it contrasts the fact that you are sitting for eight hours at a stretch in this weirdly sedentary profession, you know. But if you can kind of reflect a sort of a, a, uh, uh, a breathless, liberated way of uh, 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 of thinking, if you can get that on the page, I think that the the reader responds to that. You know that kind of ecstatic writing that um, that I think we forget sometimes that uh, it it it's just as much fun to write as it is to read. And and uh, so after writing this, I thought like, well, I you know the, why why write any other way? You know, I I, I struggle with it all the time. Because there are t forms of storytelling where you do need a more sober, not to say staid, but kind of a tonally neutral way of writing where you're getting out of the way of the story. Like writing nonfiction, usually I'm trying to just disappear as a narrator and let the story emerge. And I do think that that makes for good reading and it is the right way tonally to tell certain stories. But as a writer, it's a lot less fun, <laughs> you know, right. when you're stripping away the, the, the flourishes and you're holding yourself to just the most kind of non-demonstrative writing or, you know, you're, you're refusing any flourishes. And I, so it's it's tough, you know. I don't know if you struggle with the same thing, but I uh, I do find that when you do when you find the right vehicle for a voice like this, like it really feels like home, you know. Like why I only wanna I only wanna be there. I want to be able to find that kind of jet stream every time. Well, it's a nice and it's a lovely world. I mean, like I think of the term world building when I think of books that work in a super imaginative kind of fantastical mode. This setting has been compared uh, a lot in reviews, as I'm sure you've seen, to Golden Gate Park. I know it is not Golden Gate Park, but it is Golden Gate Park-esque. Yeah, it's based there. I mean, yeah. based on uh, the park and then it departs. I mean, if you haven't been there and you don't know the bay, nobody would guess, you know, but if you've been there, you're going to be like, well, wait a minute. I know that duck pond and I know that. But yeah, I didn't want anyone to hold it to it. I did run into like a a friend who uh, was like, well, wait a minute. That's the de Young Museum. And that's that, you know, he was doing this one to one comparison and that's the kind of thing that that disclaimer is trying to guard against. Like it is, you get, you kick yourself when you lead people into like one assumption and then you're trying to, you know, crack, uh, you know, then break that, uh, 
that uh, thread, I guess, like, or t- anyway, I, I, I hope for, for anyone that doesn't live here, no one's going to know what the park is, but, but I spend a lot of time in Golden Gate Park and I, I think it's a, uh, by far the best urban park in the world. And um, I don't think that there's even a close second, but other than just sort of borrowing a few locations, there's, there's no, uh, and, and the bison, of course, there's no, uh, there's no direct correlation. So I'm curious about the origin. Like I ask this of writers maybe too often, because it's kind of a hard question to answer usually, but with, with this particular story, I'm wondering if there is a point of origin that you can locate. Like, I have to admit, I, part of me was like, did Dave have a psychedelic experience in Golden Gate Park that was particularly meaningful? <laughs> like, I've never had a psychedelic experience, period. Um, <laughs> weirdly, I've never done a drug. So I, but I, I feel like every time you're there, it's a psychedelic experience in that it's, it's, so irrationally beautiful for and wild for an urban park. And I've read a lot about the history of it. And, you know, that it was all sand dunes way back when, you know, half, half the city of San Francisco was just dunes. It was miles and miles of dunes. So when you take the Western edition all the way to the sea, it was all sand dunes. So they had to plant those trees over the eucalyptus and cypress or you know uh california pines and all of those over not cypress but over the course of years to try to change the uh uh the landscape and and fill it in with grass and trees and bushes and lakes and um so it's a monumental feat of engineering what they did but then they've ended up with this very wild and vast park where seeming it's just worlds upon worlds it takes so long to get through it's so huge so you know seeing it through my kids eyes when they were growing up going there and seeing every single time I was there the other day and I got lost (laughs) I was supposed to meet somebody and we were both lost because it's so big and so little of it is marked actually so um I uh I think I started with the voice of the dog. I started with the idea that he had this relationship with the bison who were kept and fenced in and unable to be free. And that's all I knew. And I just started writing about this dog that runs fast and sort of glories in his speed and his ability to run free and see things and report back to these sort of incarcerated bison, I guess. And, uh, well, here I go. Now people are going to think it's about incarcerated people. <laughs> it's not that <laughs> I was trying this to is think about one of the most moving children's books about yeah. the prison system I've ever read. I've got to say it's definitely not that there really are bison that have been there for about a hundred years and generations upon generations and, uh, of them. And, uh, and I do feel bad for these bison. I see them every time I'm there. I don't think that they should be caged in a two acre or three acre paddock. I do have a real sensitivity to sort of animals that are not free. So uh, there is a lot about that, you know, like what does freedom mean when Johannes, the dog protagonist, is first has his first taste of being uh, sort of kidnapped and kept. He is sort of radicalized into what that means. And he can sort of see the bison's 
predicament in a new way and, and is determined to try to set them free. But, you know, it really was, this was written over the course of maybe six years, sort of, I'd go back to it and then move a little further and, uh, go back to it. And, uh, and I think it was finished in maybe 2021, 2020. So it was finished during COVID when I had, uh, we finally got Wi-Fi at home, never had Wi-Fi until then, but we had to have it for school. And, uh, so I had to work outside the house at that point. I got a boat. I started writing on a boat where I still write now. And so it really helped because when you're writing on a boat, you're like halfway outside anyway, you know, like I'm on a boat, I'm in my little cabin, but it's open to the, the, the bay and you're seeing heron and herons and seals and cormorants and ducks and uh, pelicans. And so these were sort of my neighbors when I was finishing it. And that helped enormously because seeing the sea lions, weirdly sea lions of the bay really helped me kind of finish and zero in on the consciousness of this dog, because they are very similar species dog, you know, their sea lions are called sea dogs. And um, they're so similar in that they're so thoughtful, so soulful, but also constantly exulting in their speed and freedom they got nothing to do <laughs> seals have no work to do no job they they you know they the task of eating might take them an hour a day and otherwise they are free and so when you see them in the bay and they just sort of investigate what you're doing you go kayak they want to see what you're up to you're like well that is the absolute apex of freedom on earth. And so they were served as a constant inspiration. Yeah. There's something interesting about like creative choices that you made. They seem logical with the benefit of hindsight, but I'm sure it was part of the process for you in getting this thing worked out is that, you know, the, the animals in your story have a very sophisticated, like uh, vocabulary and yet each of them, there are certain personality traits that are consistent with their species, which I thought was, I was like, oh yeah, that's the right choice. You know, this, the, the way that Johannes can't really manage time, you know, he hasn't <laughs> like dogs have no sense of time, right? You leave the house for five minutes, you come back, your dog treats you as though you've been gone for like 20 years. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was super random. Like I don't even, I mean, but that's where you know, the sort of first thought, best thought part of it came in because in a way, this is sort of like a beat novel about <laughs> a bunch of animals where <laughs> I, I didn't have that. I didn't have that thought. I've never had a dog. I have cats, weirdly enough. And I don't know if they have a sense of time or not, but I just thought it would be funny. And it, it was, it was out on the page before I knew what I was typing was that he didn't know you know, what an hour was or a, a year, the distance between this tree and the sea might be 10,000 miles. And it's the other animals that, that sort of bring him back to some sort of grounding. But, and it just made me laugh. And so some of it is kind of based on maybe how a raccoon would think like he, they're very prideful about their opposable thumbs, you know, and so, and they're very kind of, they, they, they assume that they're the best planners and um, the best uh, 
at, at working out a heist necessary, you know, and, uh, but they, but, but then, you know, obviously when I'm saying that, it sounds ludicrous to say that that's <laughs> rational. Like, well, of course the raccoons are prideful about, you know, but, but you, you do find you want to make it fun and, and, and a little bit surprising, but still grounded in some sense of, uh, what animals actually can do you know there's a one-eyed squirrel there's a pelican they all sort of have duties but why the pelican is the one that knows how to read signs there's just no there's, there's no uh reason whatsoever but somebody had to be able to do it and the one-eyed squirrel there is a corollary right there was a one-eyed squirrel in your yard as a child yeah I... yeah and growing up in the chicago suburbs we for years we had this one-eyed squirrel that came to our back door every day and we would feed it i don't know what we fed it but anyway we would feed it and and this is a very low level mammal we assume but in that one eye you know you you and i don't think it's a matter of just sort of fake transference and or anthropomorphization i think these animals have real souls i mean um, they know how to play they know how to grieve they know loyalty we have raccoons in our yard now that we have an arrangement where for our compost we have this system i don't know if you do there where you can just throw all your compost in a giant bin and then they take it away and we leave it open i mean we don't tie the compost bin you know closed with uh bungees or anything because the raccoons will go in eat whatever they want and then they love avocados above all and then they will leave the avocado skin on the top of the compost cover so they open it up they go inside and then they eat and then they they jump out again they close the cover because they have to close it they close the cover and then they put the skin on top and that's their signal to us like thank you <laughs> appreciate you for leaving this open for us it means a lot here's the little calling card which is the avocado skin and it's i mean that's ludicrous right to think like oh this is just a a raccoon how smart could they be but you know, i'm so convinced now with two cats and growing up with cats and sort of observing animals while we've been talking, there's two dogs in our office that are, that spend the days here very often and they play together and their souls are so complex and so different. And the two cats that we have are cousins, but they react to every single stimuli differently and they have different emotional relationships with each of us in the house. And so I don't think it's that big of a stretch to think of the consciousness reflected in this novel. I don't think that their actual consciousness is so much less complex than depicted, you know? Hmm. And the fact when you see a dog running at full speed or playing with other dogs, that exultation is proof of soul, you know, it's proof of complexity. And why would, what would be the evolutionary purpose of that kind of joy, you know? it's really strange. So then you, then you get into sort of the spiritual, like, well, okay. So the spirits and souls of these animals are, are complex and are capable of that kind of sort of transcendent 
appreciation of what they've been born with, their speed, their vision, their, their ability to sort of make the earth turn by grasping at the soil. You know, it's, it's really interesting when you get into it, when you just sit there and you watch animals for an hour, you're like, man, there's joy there. Why would there, why would that be? You know, what's the evolutionary purpose if these are all sort of mammals with, uh, without the same kind of consciousness as us. And then we, the only conclusion is that they have consciousness that is approaching the complexity of ours, you know, not capable of writing or reading or inventing useless machines, but, but something approaching our, our, uh, spirituality. Well, I cannot, uh, have this conversation without acknowledging the wonderful artwork in this book, like yeah. unusually beautiful, uh, artwork by, I believe it's Sean Harris. Yeah. Sean and I have worked on a bunch of books together and I was looking back, he, he illustrated, his first book was uh, a book that we did together about the Statue of Liberty called Her Right Foot. And we, you know, just clicked and uh, really have a almost, we always sort of agree and see things the same way. And he's the most versatile uh, and gifted artist I, I, I think I know. And uh, back in 2019, we met up and uh and i was and i said i'm you know writing this book uh finishing this book i thought i was finishing it back then and um let's make the most beautiful you know uh package and artwork for it that's ever been done by humankind and so <laughs> that was our starting point and so we 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 came up with the the wooden cover i'd been i'd seen greeting cards made of bamboo that were mass produced. And so I thought if they could make greeting cards for like, you know, $8, why wouldn't you be able to make a, a book with the same kind of process, like laser cut machine, laser cut into bamboo. And so our book has a bamboo cover. And then with in the interior, I thought instead of illustrating each moment from the book, why not just have these sort of color baths that you would encounter every 15 or 20 pages where it's just like a, uh, a vast tableau of the park, full bleed two page artwork. And I forget, I think it must've been Sean's idea to use these old Dutch and Flemish master paintings to, as the starting point. And then he painted Johannes into these landscapes. And, uh, we had a, that designer here, Annie Dills, that helped us find these paintings that were sort of in the public domain, but we still got permission to use them. And yeah, and then Sean just sort of found ways to sort of very gracefully insert him in there. And uh, I think it turned out beautifully, but it was four years almost in sort of R&D, you know, going back and forth with the printer and making sure it was just right. We've had the finished books for almost a year because we wanted to, to make sure it was exactly right. Well, there's an incredible diversity to the work that you've done as a writer and an artist through the years. You've obviously written adult fiction. You've written children's books. This is an all-ages book. You've done journalism work, nonfiction books, uh, oral history 
I could be missing something. Screenwriting. Did I already say that? And I'm curious to know about that part of it for you, because I think there is a school of thought that might posit that one should focus on something and just lock in and do that thing over and over again, which is what a lot of writers do. They, you know, they write literary fiction, they're novelists, that's it. They don't even write story collections. They just do novels. Right. But you have a more diversified output and I'm wondering how you experience that. If you feel like you must feel like it gives you something rather than take something away. But I think there might be people out there who are like, is this a wise path? Is it distracting at times? Do you find yourself starting things and not finishing things? Do you ever feel like you've lost the thread and you know, you're kind of overextended? Well, I, I think that you're talking about freedom, right? And this is the major theme of this book is that if you are beholden as an artist to some perception of, well, what's the right way to go through a short life in a universe without, <laughs> perhaps without meaning, you know? And if you're going to say, well, the right way is to write variations on the same novel every four years until I'm dead. <laughs> it's a very, very sad, sad way to go through life. I think that we, uh, and, and if that is someone's way and they, and they want to do it that way, and I do know artists that are very methodical and that they, they, they do, they're very happy with that, with their method, you know, with it being every once a decade, you know, you put out a work of art, whether it's a, a book or a, uh, you know, a, uh, opera or, or something. And, so I always just think if, if that is your way and if that is the way that you feel most happy and to use a terrible word fulfilled, then great. But when I hear or, or feel like somebody is going through their life as an artist in a way because they think that that is the right way or that the, their percep perception will be they will be perceived as having done it the right way or the most appropriate way for them. That is a tragedy, you know, like the, to, to be given the gift of writing or creating for a living and then to cage yourself in, you know, within the boundaries of what's deemed acceptable is just a, the worst tragedy of all. I think that I feel every day so lucky to be able to do this, to be able to get up in the morning and create stuff or, and uh, think about wooden covers for a book about a dog at a park. And I mean, <laughs> it's just ludicrous luck, you know? And, and I think that the best way to kind of honor that uh, luck is to do anything you want to do. And if it and if it ends up being not a, a total success on whatever level you however you judge it, then that's fine. But in a short life, and I'm exquisitely aware of how short life can be, I want to do anything I want to do. So if tomorrow somebody pulled up in front of the office here at 849 Valencia and said, hey, do you want to go on a cross country trip in a 
car shaped like a banana <laughs> and uh, we're going to uh, visit all of the national parks that have waterfalls and we're going to adopt a bobcat and name him Steve. And I, you know, I'm just going on and on. Like, and if I felt like doing that that day, then certainly I, I would, you know, I, I, uh, that's such a weird example. I don't know why I was thinking <laughs> about that. Weirdly, I did, we were, my daughter and I were in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where I went to school and there was the Wiener Mobile and the Oscar Mayer, no, the Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile and the Planters Peanut Mobile were both on the same street in the same, <laughs> at the same time in like waiting one after another in traffic. It was the most incredible thing. <laughs> so it's on my mind. But I guess, I guess like I, I do know what you're saying. And I think when I was a very young writer in my 20s, I did sometimes look at older artists that I knew and say, well, I love your prose. Why are you writing screenplays? You know, um, I don't think that that's cool. And but I think that generally that is the mindset of a sort of, a, you know, a very early 20s sort of uh, both there's a certain amount of ignorance there's a certain amount of cynicism there's a certain amount of just like wrong-headedness and, and and i think that sort of self-enforced i i guess adherence to what's cool you know or what's acceptable and it is so contrary to the entire idea of being an artist you know hmm. which is about the ex, you know, about living fully freely. And so that's when any kind of incursion into that freedom, any kind of encroachment of that freedom is really upsetting to me. And we're seeing more of it now than whether it's banning books on the, on the right or whether it's censoring books on the left, like they did with Roald Dahl. These are all encroachments into freedom. And we have to remember that the freedom of the artist has to be absolute. Otherwise, there's no art because then we're just writing pamphlets or we're, it's like state-sponsored creation. It's the same thing as under the Soviets where we're, we're in service to some political message. The, the, the artist must be absolutely untethered. And whether or not that art is good or bad or whatever, that's fine. But there can be no rules about creation. And, and you know, uh, we might not love every last thing that this artist does, but they have to be completely untethered. What do you think of that? I like that. I like that. I think what I was thinking as you were speaking is about, I always think about comedians in particular because they are tasked with having to sort of go right up to the line and maybe like put a toe over, you know, and really test boundaries. I mean, all artists do, but comedians are there to sort of shock and, uh, you know, bend things a bit. And I feel like this is a hard environment in a lot of ways to do that work. Well, yeah, we've, we've forgotten that art has to be apart from uh, political agendas, period. And, you know, I'm a political person, you know, like I want certain laws uh, repealed and other laws passed. And I feel like 
and I'm a progressive, I'm a San Francisco liberal, but at the same time, I want all artists to be completely untethered and be able to say anything they want to say. And we can say, boy, I didn't like that joke you made, or that one was over the line, but we can't say you can't say that. Like that is outrageous. I mean, that is the end of all art. If you, if those words, you can't say that are uttered or you can't write that, that is the end of art. And so when I find progressives saying those things that are just mirror images of the conservatives that say, you can't write that and you can't show that to kids or whatever it is, um, it, it's two sides of the same coin. And we have to remember that the, the left has to be the side of freedom. We have to be the side that allows a woman to choose, that allows people to move freely, that allows immigrants to have a better life here, and that allows untethered freedom of expression, period. And if we can send that message, and I think Gavin Newsom is doing a very good job of that, to say we're the party of freedom and just hold that line, then we can win in 2024 and onward. But if we're the ones that are like, you can't say this, you can't do that, you can't, I mean, then it's going to be, uh, uh, we're not going to get the result we want. Um, if we let the Republicans take that mantle, that is disastrous. But I want to make one comparison. I don't know if you were a Bulls fan. Uh, but I was a, I'm a Wisconsin uh, guy. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't. Who did you have there in the eighties and nineties? Sidney Moncrief. <laughs> Sidney Moncrief, right? Marcus Johnson. I think there was somebody else because I was a Marquette fan growing up, but I thought you had a Marquette guy like Mark Aguirre or somebody. Didn't he play there? Maybe not. But remember when Jordan quit basketball? His dad died. He quit basketball, and he became a minor league baseball player. And those of us that love Jordan were like, what are you doing? And people were thinking, oh, this is, you know, what, this isn't what you should be doing. You should be playing basketball because we like to see you play basketball. And even then, I, you know, I briefly flirted with that idea, like you should be doing this thing and not that other thing. But then it became clear to me that this was the most, this was the fullest expression of a human's free will to say, I'm giving up everything. You know, this, you know, I was at the top of the basketball world or whatever, but I want to try baseball <laughs> because I do, because I'm young and my muscles are strong and I feel like I might be able to do it. And it was something to honor my dad and, you know, all of these reasons that Jordan did it. And it, it, I, it made me then in, in hindsight, just respect him a thousand times more for asserting his freedom as a human in a short life on a meaningless planet to sort of do exactly what he wanted to do. And anybody that would judge him for it is forgetting all of those things, that free will matters, that freedom matters, that one should be able to determine their, their uh, destiny, even if it's willful or whimsical on a daily basis without feeling remotely obligated toward what some outside voice, some bystander a thousand miles away and totally uninvolved and with no right to, to judge thinks that they should be doing. So that's always my comparison. If Jordan can ride the bus, if Jordan can uh, be a minor league baseball player, then we should all feel free to experiment 
in any way we want, when we want, knowing how fleeting this life is. Well, on a, on a related note, I mean, something you said earlier about honoring the good fortune of being able to create by insisting on this freedom and acting on this freedom creatively and following your your whims and experimenting and really living freely in that way. That strikes me as a really wise response to your set of circumstances or the set of circumstances of anybody on this earth who gets to be creative on a regular basis. And on a related note, I think you're also very industrious and prolific, at least compared to most writers I know. And I think it, like this too, is a response to good fortune and honoring that good fortune. And I know there are probably listeners who are wondering how you do it all. You know, you, like, we, like we've been talking about, you write in all these different genres. You are running A26, McSweeney's. Well, I'll say, I'll stop you there. I definitely don't run A26. The gift is, you know, we started it. Nineveh Caligari and I and uh, another friend, Barb Bursi, uh, um, And then after a while, uh, I mean, right now, 826 Valencia up here, I'm across the street from it, is run by an incredible person named Bita Nazarian. She's the executive director and she has a staff of 30 odd people and they don't need my help. You know, they I'm these days. Uh, if I'm called upon, I'll help and I'll raise funds. But at a certain point, you got to back away and let the really talented people, <laughs> the educators, run these organizations. So down there, there's a, woman, a guy named uh, Jaime Balboa that runs 826LA, and he's incredible. And before him, there was Joel Arquios. And I don't have to do much on the day-to-day -day basis. And I freely admit that I want to get out of the way. I like to you know, get these things off the ground and help when I can. But the day-to-day, -day, boy, the, the staffs of these organizations are so gifted and so good at their work. So I, weirdly, you know, I'm free to spend a day, you know, writing or trying to write for eight hours straight on my boat and maybe getting half an hour's productivity out of it. <laughs> I mean, that's my ratio. It's like, 40 minutes for every eight hours in the in the writing position, but it does add up. And, um, you know, I, I don't have to, you know, so many of my friends have to teach at universities and there's a, that's a lot of responsibility. And at this point I, I get to sort of just, uh, write and maybe it'll change, but for the moment, that's what I get to do. And, uh, so that's a lot of time. And, um, you know, even 500 words a day or something that, you know, it adds up. So, I mean, because you feel lucky to be able to do it, you should do it. You know, like, uh, I, I, there's, there's ideas that I would like to realize and, and I feel like, okay, if I've been given this chance, you should, um, be industrious, you know, and I always been working since I was 11 years old, you know, I, I was always, uh, and my parents had real jobs. And so, uh, I feel like, uh, compared to them, I'm, uh, the laziest, uh, human, uh, I know, but, um, but I do feel like if you've been given a chance, 
if you if you're in this position where there's publishers that will actually pay money to print your work i mean that's uh the luckiest place a human could find themselves so you might as well do the work but that said i do wake up and go to bed always thinking i should be doing more and i didn't get anything done that day and what a slob i am and i can i try to do better tomorrow yeah you know something else you said earlier is like that you have a pretty exquisite sense of the uncertainty of existence and the brevity of life and like watching you from afar through the years i mean starting with heartbreaking work when it came out and i believe the year 2000 and sort of exploded, uh, which I'm, which I imagine was something of a surprise to you, like the level of reach. That surprise that... to everybody. Yeah, they only printed six thousand copies of that book. <laughs> right. Like, it was my buddy Jeff Klosky who was the editor, and the both of us were just like uh, he invited me to come to the warehouse. I forget somewhere in the tri-state area, maybe New Jersey because they were so there were no orders for the book nobody wanted it and so we were going to sign he said will you go to the warehouse and sign all of the books so that they might order a few more because uh so the two of us were just uh went into it feeling like okay that's a that was a failed experiment and so what so we were both very shocked when uh when people uh, took to it, it was a shock to everybody. And I think it was about a month or five weeks uh, when there were no books because they had been, everybody had been caught a little bit flat footed. Do you know why that book took off? Was there an, like, was there something that happened or was it simply word of mouth reader to reader? Well, I thought it was more of an experimental book for a small readership. You know, we had had this magazine, Might Magazine, and then I was doing McSweeney's and both of those had very small audiences. So I was just used to a very small, you know, audience of people pretty much like me, same age and vaguely uh, background. And I thought, okay, well, this is a book for them. And how many of those people are there out there? There's not too many. And, um, but I think that the shock to both of us was that it was the first event I did seeing a bunch of Older readers, people with white hair in the audience, grandparents, uh, people of all kinds of you know ages and backgrounds. That was totally unexpected, and I guess it had transcended, you know, the sort of the expected demographic, and it was hitting people on a lot of different levels. You know, people who had lost loved ones, people that had, uh, you know, had unusual family situations, people. Uh, uh, I don't know. It, was, it, 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 it struck everybody on a, on, on many, it, you know, there were so many other unexpected entry points, I guess, to the book. So it took me a long, long time to try to figure out what, <laughs> what had happened and what they were getting out of it and why such an incredibly specific book, because it really was, was not written for a general audience. I mean, it's very obvious when you read it. It's so idiosyncratic and strange but but the personal is universal i think well there there you have it i mean and since then because i've advised so many friends and relatives and strangers about memoir writing like that as that's an old chestnut but it's very it's very true you know like the 
you do have to dig deep. I was just in, yeah, Champaign-Urbana talking to some, I was talking to a young man actually in a creative writing class who just lost his mom. And he was really in the same situation that I was as an undergrad and talking to him about, you know, leaving every bit of passion and pain and rawness on the page if he can stand it, because that's what's going to resonate with people. Not the, you know, don't sand all that down and don't feel like it's too much or too raw or too, uh, all of those, when you really lay it all out and, you know, and, and leave the, the blood stains on the, on the page and tell the most unvarnished truths, if you can stand it, those are the things that your readers are going to say, ah, finally, somebody said it, you know, that's how I feel. And I can't believe you said it. You had the courage to say it. So this young man, who I could tell was really going through it still, and he, a lot of what he was writing, I'm sure, is just pure catharsis right now and trying to work his way out. But it can be so therapeutic and cathartic. And and then every so often, you make something that's coherent. A lot of times, you don't. Sometimes you write your own story, and it doesn't make any sense <laughs> to anybody else. But it was good to do it, you know? And then there are those times when every so often your unvarnished truth connects with other people. And um, that's just pure chance, I think. Well, I have to acknowledge like the, the public side of the success of that book. And I think especially the, I mean, you're a public figure and have been since then, but I think in that early wave of success where that book was really finding a readership and suddenly put you out there and people because it was a memoir because it is a memoir and has so much personal stuff in it i think people what do they call it now a parasocial relationship <laughs> uh where people oh i don't even know that word what does that mean it's like where people feel like people have a parasocial relationship with entertainers and media figures uh, who create because okay. they are like people have a parasocial relationship with me as an example because i'm in their ears a lot if they listen to right. my show but I am, like, as an observer, I admire the way that at least I've seen you respond to all that in a general sense. And, and this is going to, I'm just going to kind of give you my take and then you can feel free to disagree with me. <laughs> but it seemed to me like you kind of got hit with literary celebrity to whatever level one can have that in the United States of America in the 21st century. And there was a lot of activity, a lot of celebration, a lot of then like opinionating and people, you know, maybe there was some minor backlash. I think these things have to be like, there needs to be some uh, perspective because again, this is literary culture. It's not like everybody in America was pounding the kitchen table about this, but I, uh, I've noticed that for the most part, you've just put your head down and just done the work. Like, like, well, I, I mean, I was advising somebody yesterday about this. Uh, well, that that's exactly the phrase that I say that I give to people. I mean, I've never been on social media and I haven't, I don't, I don't, I mean, we'll do this podcast. I'm not going to listen to this podcast, <laughs> you know, like I don't read, I don't look at anything about me because there's infinitely more interesting topics out there than reading about oneself. And so, yeah, I think that that's always the key. You know, I was talking to, uh, we're going, you know, I, I, I'm a 
basketball fan, obviously, and uh, I've seen a big change and the people that I know that are in front offices and stuff. And I have some friends that are, you know, involved in, and, and actually Jordan was talking about this uh, too. The difference now where you have these athletes that are at the top of their craft are financially set for life, have, you know, adulation of all of these fans like myself and yet are deeply unhappy. <laughs> and it's because they're on their phones at halftime, seeing what people think about what they did in the first half. You know, they're, they're drinking from the fire hose all day from the, and reading the thoughts of some of the strangest humans on the planet acting with their, you know, at their worst selves, saying things anonymously to, you know, and it's just such a strange concept to try to do that. It's like, you know, going into the, you know, the darkest part of strangers consciousness and saying, what do you think? You know, <laughs> tell me what you think of me when you're sitting anonymously typing bile at a, at a computer. It just doesn't make any sense to listen to these things and to open yourself to it because it's not anyone's best self. In real life, like the best thing you could do as an author is go to a bookstore sign some books, talk to real people who are the greatest, you know, this is the greatest interactions you can have. It's just human to human and talking about things. And, um, but getting online where it's this terrible twisted funhouse mirror and where everybody is there is truly their worst selves is just a recipe for mental anguish. And so I've said to, I advise a lot of young authors, some of whom I had as students, and I always say, I w I'm always here for you. And um, they do call me and we talk and we meet up when, it, when their first books come out and everything. But I said, I'm not going to be here for you if you go on social media and try to fight and, and read about, you know, what uh, strangers in their darkest moments, think about you. Like that's, <laughs> that's just not, I'm not going to advise you out of that because you've, you've chosen to go to the worst, the worst fear uh, of humanity. And so stay above it, stay in the real world, talk to real people, um, interact human to human, and you're going to have a, a, a great life. And so I've been successful with a few of, you know, young people I know uh, that way, but I, it does cause me, I'm so concerned and so worried about some of these athletes that I love so much, how they play. And then you see how they're reading all of these things and how they, you know, interact with strangers or 12 year olds on Twitter. <laughs> and you just think it's so, it's so unnecessary. And it's such a, such a, such an unfortunate way to go through life. And I think in person, Everywhere I go, whether it's Ukraine or whether it's Trump rallies, like I've had so many warm, long, productive conversations at Trump rallies because I listen to people and I know that, you know, I'm going to hate the sin, but not the sinner. You know, that old phrase, like I, I want to talk to you and, and appreciate the person and think maybe I can try to convince this person <laughs> that uh of why this person is dangerous to our uh 
democracy to our republic. And uh, maybe if I if I slowly if I listen to them, we can come to some sort of middle ground. And always it's middle ground, really. I've I've only really talked to a few people where I wasn't able to sort of really meet them eye to eye, and we couldn't agree on ninety eight percent of things. It's truly that way. Once you can get them off Hunter Biden, and once you can get them off a few of these like weird mantras that they recite, then you can find that you agree on a lot of things. And um, I had that experience in Rapid City last year when I went to a city council meeting after they had banned my book and some other books. And I talked to, there were some really lunatic fringe people there that were basically, had come in from out of state. They didn't have kids in the district. They didn't have any dog in the fight really, but they were just there to kind of agitate. But then I actually met an actual mother who had kids in the district and she's like, well, I just don't think that some of these books are appropriate for freshmen. And I was like, well, I agree. You know, these books were assigned to seniors, you know, and um, and I wouldn't say that every senior has to read them either because they weren't. They're they're optional. But that's just to say that she and I found that we agreed on everything. But we hadn't she hadn't understood the terms of the debate. She hadn't understood, you know, what was actually being proposed because she'd been listening to the shrill voices on, uh, on the far right. And so I think always in real life, people are so good, you know, I mean, 99.9% of the time. And I think that that's why I'm so concerned about young people living through screens. That's why it's so important to limit that time in that, dark, dark corridor and to live in the real world. And if you do, and you find a, you know, a drastically higher uh, chance of living a happy life, you know, real life is a beautiful thing, <laughs> you know? So uh, if you stay there, if you stay in the open air face to face or, you know, on the water or in the woods and encountering humans as they're meant to be encountered in, 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 in the flesh and not on screens, then I think, uh, I think we'll be okay. Well, on that note, Dave, I, uh, I'm going to let you go, but before I do, I always ask people what they have in the works. I have to imagine you have other projects going. Is there anything you can share stuff in the pipeline that might be, uh, you know, there's a story that'll be out in, in one story, Hannah Tinty's magazine, I think in about a month and a half and it's about talk about a departure. It's about a, uh, a graphic designer that does wedding and invent invitations. And one day her uncle says to her like, well, why don't you just print an extra one of those and go, you know, to, uh, a given, you know, fundraiser or fancy fundraiser somewhere. And so, the two of them begin doing that, uh, she reluctantly, but he gleefully. And so it's a very kind of, you know, lighthearted story about welcoming, about belonging, and also about sort of coming out of our COVID isolation and sort of rejoining the world again. Okay. And then any books or, or uh, movie projects? Uh, books uh, down the road and movie projects. No, not really. I, uh, I, I still, I'm part of the WGA. So technically I'm on strike because 
the health insurance is so good. And so we've always been part of the WGA, my wife and I, so can't be doing anything anyway until we get all this straight. And I think it's a very just strike. It's definitely necessary. And we wholly support the that union that's been very good to us. So um, nothing along those lines, but sort of... Uh, and then the other last thing is we're working on teacher salaries. Like uh, the teacher salary project has finally gotten some legislation cooking with the help of Frederica Wilson, where it would set a federal minimum of $60,000 for all teachers in the U.S., which I think might come to fruition. It's at least got more chance now than it has in a lot of years. So that's something I hope uh, people look out for. Wonderful. Well, uh, I'm so pleased to have you on the show and to get the chance to talk with you. I really appreciate the time. Congratulations on the eyes and the impossible. And I hope we get to talk again sometime down the road. Thanks so much, Brad. It was really fun. All right, guys, there we go. There he is. That was Dave Eggers. His new novel for all ages is called The Eyes and the Impossible, available now in a limited edition deluxe woodbound hardcover from McSweeney's and in a traditional hardcover from Knopf Books for Young Readers. You can find Dave on the internet at daveeggers.net. He does not, as we discussed, have any social media presence. One more time, the book is called The Eyes and the Impossible, available now. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely. There is no paywall. If you enjoyed your experience, I hope you will consider supporting this podcast. You can do so for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to get an Other People t-shirt, you can do so at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you would like to sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter, sign up at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. You can watch the show on YouTube. You can follow it on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. If you have feedback for me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. It's one year old. Help the book celebrate its birthday. Get a copy of Be Brief and Tell Them Everything if you so desire. Coming up next on The Other People Show, I will be talking with Isabella Hamad. Her new novel is called Enter Ghost, and it is publishing here in the States on Grove Press. I had a great talk with her. That will be happening on Wednesday. So, stay tuned. <laughs>